Hello and welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with ACE Cultural Tours. It's Violet here. This week we'll be donning our lab coats and gaining access to the secrets of particle physics. Our guest this week is unusual for travels through time. She's a scientist rather than a historian, but she's also quite unusual within her own field of accelerator physics. Firstly, because she's a woman, and secondly, because she is a brilliant communicator, able to beautifully articulate the wonder and complexity of physics. Dr. Susie Sheehy currently splits her time between the University of Oxford and her lab in Melbourne, Australia, giving her what must surely be the longest commute on Earth. Her scientific epiphany came, as it has for so many other people over the centuries, when she was lying in the darkness, gazing up at the stars. She felt an overwhelming desire to study and understand the world around us, from the smallest subatomic particles up to the largest scales of the universe. Aside from her work in the lab designing particle accelerators, Sheehy is passionate about sharing the wonders of physics via TEDx talks, educational outreach programmes with the likes of CERN, demonstrating experiments to live audiences, and a helpful YouTube video explaining how to make a cloud chamber. In her new book, The Matter of Everything, 12 Experiments That Changed Our World, She tells the major discovery stories of the past century, the cathode ray tube that brought us television, splitting the atom, finding new particles, and, of course, the Large Hadron Collider and Higgs boson. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Susie, and welcome to Travels Through Time. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, Today we are recording in person in the Oxford University Physics Building, which is a huge thrill because I don't get to go into this kind of building very often. We're going to be talking about your new book, which is about the 12 big experiments in physics in the last century. But before we get into that, could you explain to our listeners what your job is. It says um, that you are an accelerator physicist, which sounds incredibly cool. So can you just describe to us what you do? Sure, yeah. So I'm I'm a physicist. Rather than being a theoretical physicist, I'm an experimental physicist. And in particular, where my field comes from is the field of particle physics. So the search for the smallest constituents in nature. But in particular, I work on the physics of the machines that we use for that. So the particle accelerators that make uh, subatomic particles go faster. So nowadays we use them not just for particle physics, but also for things like cancer treatment and even in factories and places like that. So I have a a, a very varied job, but my day-to-day work is trying to understand the physics of how beams behave and trying to redesign the machines to make them better, smaller, cheaper, revolutionise them in some way for the future. And I know that you work, you spend 
part of your time here in Oxford and then the other part of your time you're on the other side of the world in Melbourne. So can you just tell us a bit about that and how that works as a commute? Yeah, <laughs> it's quite a commute, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I've been in and around Oxford for almost 14 years. Um, I was actually a graduate student here and then in the last couple of years I was approached to start a new research group at the University of Melbourne in Australia because no one in Australia at the moment runs a research group in my research field uh, and so they they sort of asked me if I'd come. I wasn't quite ready to move so we decided on a 50-50 for a couple of years um, and then the pandemic happened so that was awkward but yeah I'm starting a new research group there focusing on the medical applications of uh, particle accelerators so I've got a new lab underway there and as of this year I'm now visiting lecturer in Oxford so I've sort of formally relinquished my research position here but I still have some graduate students and a, a small lab just south of here as well. Okay and in your book you described it beautifully this night that you spent at a place called the Leon Mo Dark Sky site, which was kind of your moment of revelation and deciding that this was what you wanted to do. So can you tell that story and explain how, you know, you study the, the tiniest, 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 tiniest particles that anyone could imagine, but you became inspired when lying looking at the universe and the night sky. So can you just tell us about that? Absolutely, yeah. So I was I was actually a student at Melbourne University um, and I was actually studying engineering and I was doing a bit of physics on the side to sort of you know, enhance my engineering because I had in mind that I'd, you know, I wanted to know what my career was, right, when I chose what I was going to do. So, right, engineering, that seemed clear. And then a group of students um, from the Physics Student Society invited me out to this so-called dark sky site, which is an area where there's no um, lights around, so that the night sky is very, very dark. And so we went out there with telescopes and beer, you know, like 18-year-old students, and set up our tents and things. And then I just remember laying on, you know, we had these sort of camping mats and sleeping bags, and we just lay there for hours watching the stars with no no light around so we weren't allowed to have even torches because it would ruin our night vision and if you've never spent at least 20 minutes letting your eyes adapt to the night sky it is quite an incredible transformation you see so much more and then in Australia as well in the southern hemisphere when you look up to the night sky you're looking into the middle of our galaxy the Milky Way whereas in the northern hemisphere you're looking outward so in the Australian night sky, there's actually a really bright band of stars going across the middle. It's so bright, in fact, that you can see dark patches in the middle. And so in Indigenous Australian astronomy, actually the dark patches are their sort of constellations or their, their dreamtime stories. There's one that's a big emu, there's another that's a big snake. And I was lying there just taking all of this in, realising all of these things, looking at the centre of our galaxy, in which I knew already that there's a supermassive black hole and just sort of contemplating my place in all of this, lying on this side of this giant rock that we call planet Earth. And I just had this real moment of awe and perspective where I realised sort of my place in this enormous thing called the universe. And I just got absolutely, you know, I, I was absolutely drawn to understand it in more detail, to understand about, you know, stars and supernovae and black holes and dark matter and and where it all came from and how it all fits together and I just sort of had this moment where I really wanted to know more and that was it that was that was when I decided I needed to become a physicist and that's wonderful because that is how most of science happened isn't it is people were gazing up at the night night sky right 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 back thousands and thousands of years 
and wondering why are we here what is it all what are the stars exactly so that experience must have you must be the I don't know how many generations of scientists must have had that experience and that's what has pushed them to go and discover things right and it's such a it's such a common human experience I think to sort of to witness something that you don't understand but that you are slightly in awe of and then decide well I'm going to try and find out it's you know to answer those big questions but also to me there's very much a an emotion or a feeling attached to that which is which is this you know this feeling of being some part of something that's larger than myself and larger even than human society. I think the difference is that lots of the rest of us who aren't scientists have that feeling and kind of just think oh I'm tiny and I'm only going to be here for a very short while and then move on but it's wonderful that there are people like you who have the impulse to go and discover more and that leads uh, me on to something which I know is really important for you and you've talked about in um, you did a TED talk on which is curiosity driven science so can you talk about that and and Tell us, tell us about it and why is it so important? Yeah, sure. So I think it's interesting nowadays to look at even just the ways we fund science and the reasons people give for funding science. And um, we do spend quite a lot of time sort of justing, justifying it based on the inventions and the technologies and the progress it's made. And, and I do speak to a lot of that in the book as well. But I think what's important is that fundamentally this idea of understanding the world better and generating new knowledge and new understanding does come from this sort of place of human curiosity. And I think if we disregard that or we don't let people spend the time following their curiosity, we're going to have a very different outcome. So I, I like to give the example of one of the first experiments in the book, which is when Willem Röntgen in Germany discovered x-rays in 1895, 1896. And he, he saw a, a screen across the side of his lab glowing when he turned on this glass tube called a cathode ray tube. And instead of just disregarding it, because that's not what he was trying to study at the time, he was trying to study the, the gases in the tube, he thought, oh, that's interesting. Sort of, that's curious, you know, and, and he, he investigated. And he spent sort of seven weeks trying to investigate what was causing the screen to glow, putting things in between the tube and the screen, eventually putting his hand in between the tube and the screen and discovered that he could see the bones in his hand and not the flesh. And so what he discovered was x-rays, right? Now, in this day and age, imagine someone who has a piece of equipment in their lab and instead of letting them follow their curiosity like that for seven weeks, they have shareholder reports and KPIs and, uh, you know, well, election cycles and all these things and they're trying to create a product because they're working for some company that needs to churn out some result very quickly. And I just think there's, there's this sort of dichotomy there, isn't there, between what we're asking people to do in terms of productivity but needing to allow people to actually follow their curiosity because that typically and through these stories that I've collected it's taught me as well the value of that because typically you arrive at a bigger understanding or a larger breakthrough by not necessarily having an end goal in mind when you set out. I also would imagine that nowadays there's quite a lot of health and safety rules about putting your hand into Yeah, that machine. would be frowned upon. <laughs> but he wouldn't have, if he hadn't done that, he wouldn't have discovered it. And, you know, x-rays have been an absolutely game-changing Completely. And, and, of course, for medicine. And, you know, now even, 
you know, with the advent of computing technology, we now have CT scanners and things. So we can even see not just bones, but we can actually see the soft tissue inside the body in intricate three-dimensional detail. You know, it's used as a first line uh, approach in hospitals. If you hit your head and go into the hospital, they will rush you in for an emergency scan. And this happened to my father once. And I was like, yeah, but what type of scan? Because that's just, you know, <laughs> obviously, I can't, you know, obviously I was like, daddy, you're okay. But also which type of scan did they give you? And he was like, I don't know. It was just a scan. I asked the doctor. It was actually a CT scan, which surprised me. But it turns out that now, you know, we can see well beyond what even its um, discoverer thought thought we could see. And then, of course, you think about the other ways we use it. I mean, you'll come across them in baggage scanners, right, at, at airports, Well, yes, and now they scan you, you know, as not just your baggage, but also you, they scan you. You have to stand in that funny machine with your arms. Yes, although that's not x-rays. That's, not? that's oh. a slightly different. Yeah, that's, okay, it's, that? like a, it's like a high-frequency microwave. Okay. So it's, that's not ionizing radiation so okay. uh, whereas x-rays is which is why we don't uh, scan people with x-rays on a daily basis unless they need it medically right? yeah yeah and so to go back to the question because I, I think it's one of the most compelling questions about science at the moment is who's directing it so who is deciding we're going to work on driverless cars as an example who, who makes those decisions and how how does it work with the funding? So how many scientists are actually allowed to sit and tinker away and just follow random lines of curiosity? And, and, and how many aren't? How, do you have any idea of the weighting? That's a really fascinating question, actually, about yeah, how, yeah. how we fund research and how that pulls people in different directions in the questions that they're asking. Um, and even who gets to be researchers, right? And there's all, all kinds of social influences and, and stereotypes and biases and things that play into who gets to be the one who has this enough time and resource to actually ask the questions and then which question are they asking i i couldn't tell you off the top of my head exactly how much sort of government research funding for example in the uk is allocated to more curiosity driven versus applied research clearly both are necessary right for us to make progress and also an individual scientist might be much more interested in one or the other so I actually do both I actually do some curiosity driven and some applied because the applied typically has quicker wins that sort of keep me motivated on a on a shorter term basis while while knowing that some of the work I do will not reach fruition perhaps for decades so so yeah the, the way that governments fund research is incredibly important to this and I don't think people realize quite how fragile that is um, yeah. as a system that if we push further and further towards, well, yes, great, you're doing this research, but what's it going to produce? And if you keep insisting again and again that that's how people are justifying what they're spending their time on, we're going to lose that serendipitous and that deep, curious discovery. Well, also then it becomes quite short-term as well, doesn't yes. it? Which, and, and it's absolutely vital. Long-term-ism long is a, an integral part of successful scientific research, isn't it? I was hearing on the yeah. radio this morning about this woodland that's owned by the University of Oxford, and they have been um, studying the great tits for 75 years. They've got data on... Yes, the... was that Whiten Woods? Yes, yeah. exactly. And yep. they, I they... run around there. <laughs> <laughs> right, they found out that spring is basically happening three weeks earlier, and the only reason they've been able to do that is because they have 75 years' worth of data. So it's really, really important. And I assume that when the research is funded by companies, so it's a sort of um, more of a capitalist model, then they are funding the production of a new product or, or something. So so that's slightly different. Is that correct? Or? Often, yes. Um, although there are there have historically been companies which did allow um, 
a, a much more curiosity-driven approach alongside it. And I think there is a recognition now in some of, especially the big tech companies, that they do need to let some of their people sort of, you know, explore the things that they're interested in. Um, so I know, for example, that I think it's at Google, possibly a few other big tech companies, they give people, you know, sort of at least 10, if not 20% of their paid time to explore projects that they're interested in, that they come up with themselves. I quite like that as, as a model. Whether or not they could make major breakthrough fundamental discoveries at this point in time and at this point of complexity of the science we're looking at, I'm not sure. Yeah, but that's good that it's at least part of the discussion, I guess. Well, and, and it also keeps people happy and interested, right? Yeah. Because especially if you're someone who loves lying out there and looking at the night sky and loves, you know, loves that big picture curiosity, you can feel quite hemmed in to be like, okay, and now you're going to deliver this this product. And I think so thinking about what motivates people within that, part of which is pursuing things that they're genuinely just curious about, uh, I guess is also part of it. So, yeah, so I don't see research even as something which is only done in universities or only done at big laboratories. Research can kind of be done by anyone, and especially nowadays, you know, we have citizen science projects, so yeah. people with no scientific background can get involved in finding things like new galaxies. One of my colleagues here in Oxford Physics, Chris Lintot, started this project where people can study the night sky and genuinely, and they've genuinely published new discoveries of hitherto unknown objects in the universe with no formal training, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that really interested me that you wrote about was a lot of these uh, scientists had to um, build their own equipment, make their own equipment and build their own experiments. And um, you talked about glass blowing as being a big um, thing. And I'm interested in that because, of course, with alchemy, sourcing really, really good quality clear glass was very, very important. And people in the 16th, 17th centuries were always going off to Venice to try and get hold of really, really high quality glass. So can you tell us about that, about the glass blowing? Yeah, it's pretty astounding that even, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, that a lot of the equipment was made out of very simple materials. But one of the most complex ones to work with was glass. And it really blew my mind a little bit to think that if I was working in this field 120 years ago, in my field, uh, instead of learning how to use you know, computer-generated engineering diagrams that go off to a workshop to be milled somewhere, that I would actually have to learn how to blow glass myself. And I was reading in a lot of the accounts of these ex- experimentalists making their glass apparatus. And in one particular one in, in Cambridge, I came across an account that said that the, the persistent sound in the background of the lab in Cambridge was the sound of blowing glass. And I was like, I don't know what that sounds like. And so I actually sought out um, one of the last scientific glass blowers working in Australia at the time. There's only a few in the UK as well, but I, I happened to be to know that there was one in my building, in the physics building in Australia, in, in, in the University of Melbourne. And his name was Les Gamel. And I went down to visit his glass blowing lab. We nerded out for like three hours about glass. It was fantastic. Um, and then he showed me how it was done. So he, he actually made a sort of glass bulb and the sound that they would have been hearing would have been the mixture of gases. And then when you light the gases through a tube, it makes this whooshing sound. And it was just so wonderful to see him at work. And I just thought, I'd it's such an artisanal skill. I have no idea how all the students and staff would have done it at the time. And I know that one famous researcher, at least in Cambridge, J.J. Thompson, the director of the lab in the early days, was actually useless with his hands. He was useless at building stuff. And so he actually hired an assistant just to make the glass apparatus for him. 
But yeah, almost all the time, I imagine that you would make this glass apparatus and it would smash on the floor. And um, yeah, Les Gamma was was telling me that yeah, more often than not, it breaks. And so actually, there was two sounds: the whooshing sound, but also the sound of breaking glass. <laughs> <laughs> so is that t- still today? I mean, you, you said. So you have your own glass blowing right, lab I, I mean, in. Yes, uh, so some universities, some institutions still, uh, mostly in chemistry, specialised equipment in chemistry, they actually still need specialised glass-blowing people. But it's a fading art, actually. And Les was already, like, post-retirement age when he showed me. And sadly, actually, in the pandemic, the whole workshop was shut down, including his glass-blowing lab. So, but uh, then where are they going to get the, the equipment from? Are there specialised companies that make it? Or um, So... He, he told me that if you need sort of a, a standardised item, um, there are still glassblowing labs, uh, sort of glassblowing factories. Um, so from Australia, they would order that mostly from China, actually, from glassblowing factories. Other than that, if you need something custom, it's a dw- dwindling capacity. I, I don't know anymore. Yeah, it's really... And he, he couldn't... They couldn't get him an apprentice. But that sounds crazy. I mean, presumably when you're doing really complicated chemical experiments, you are going to need all sorts of different size, shape. And not just the flasks and things, but he would make these beautiful spirals that went around mm-hmm. them to sort of change, you know, do temperature variations and things like this. What he could create in just a few seconds, it was absolutely astounding. And he just had this intuition for working with the glass that just takes decades of experience. And and yet, when he did it, it would just happen so quickly in front of your eyes because, of course, it's it's a liquid at that point, right? Yeah, and he just it is magical. I've seen it being done. Isn't it? Yeah, isn't it wonderful? Yeah. So the answer to that is, I don't know. I think we're losing that skill, and I'm sure there are still areas of science where that is really a huge problem for them. Yeah. So interesting. Well, if there's any would-be glass blowers out there, it sounds like it's going to be a good career to get into. It's certainly. I think it would be very satisfying. Actually, yeah, really wouldn't satisfying. It? Yeah. Well, I think I could ask you questions all day, uh, but we need to get to uh, your year. So, Susie, if we could get in a time machine, which I'm sure is something that you could I wish, happily build I wish we had one. <laughs> for us here. There's probably one in the basement. Um, if we could get into a time machine and zoom back into history, which year would we be going to? So the year that I've chosen is 1932. And can you give us a bit of background on 1932? I know that there's been a couple of decades of really quite extraordinary change and discovery in science. So can you just set the scene a bit for us, please? Sure. So um, so by 1932, uh, in terms of science and scientific discovery, we were sort of midway through quite a large revolution that happened. So at the turn of at the turn of the century, people sort of thought that physics was done basically and then you know we had Newton's laws that described gravity we had electromagnetism that described most of the electrical things that they were seeing and you know they'd just done away with the idea of the the hypothetical ether through which light traveled and we're like okay we kind of think we know what light is now it's a wave that travels on its own and then it all fell apart because a, a series of experiments started to show things like the fact that the atom wasn't the smallest thing in nature that there were particles within the atom and here I'm talking about the, ele- the discovery of the electron, which happened you know, near the turn of the century. So then 30 years after that, there'd been quite a lot of investigation, quite a lot of discovery. We discovered that the atom had a nucleus at its centre, so that meant that the atom actually was mostly empty space, and that caused a lot of people a lot of anguish, actually, this idea that instead of matter 
and everything around us feeling solid, that actually it was sort of just an illusion. And along with that illusion came the development of quantum mechanics, the idea that a wave can be a particle and a particle can be a wave. Um, you know, So now matter was no longer the sort of solid, predictable entity that we thought of. And along with radioactivity as well, which happened around the same time and our understanding of that, we also then knew that the world was not fixed, right? That everything in nature down to the level of atoms changes over time. So it was quite a disconcerting period. And then that's coupled with a period in history with the the Great Depression as well. So 1932 is really sort of peak Great Depression, um, peak of unemployment. Unemployment rates in the UK and the US are over 20%. Um, you have people living out of their cars, food banks, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a pretty grim period. But nonetheless, still in a very exciting year for... In physics, it was an incredibly exciting year. So we'd had, for for about five years prior, there'd been a race around the world to build uh, machines called particle accelerators, which is what I work on. So we had people using incredibly dangerous and quite scary technologies like giant Tesla coils creating these enormous sparks to try and create high voltages that okay, would push the, the Tesla particles. Coil? Is that where oh, the name Tesla comes from? So Nikola Tesla was a, a, a US inventor and he made these big electrical transformers which would generate these enormous like meter long sparks. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain but imagine you know imagine a room where there's just like sparks heading out in every direction. You wouldn't want to stand near that right? No. <laughs> um, and yet they were starting to think this is the kind of technology we're going to have to harness in order to investigate the nucleus of the atom. To you know, We need these enormous technologies to investigate these tiny, tiny things. But that hadn't quite come to fruition quite yet. And what was actually happening uh, in a very exciting way was people were going up in hot air balloons, they were going up mountains, and they had discovered that there's also radiation raining down on us from space in the form of, of what's called cosmic rays. They sound lovely, don't they? They're, they're very poetic, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, so these cosmic rays were raining down on us and they knew they weren't coming from the sun. And actually, to this day, we, st- we still can't describe exactly how they're formed. This, these very high energy um, sort of protons, gamma rays, things like this, coming from outer space, bombarding our atmosphere. But by this point, they discovered them and they were trying to determine what they were composed of. And so they had observed in them some of the particles that they knew already, so things like the electron, uh, particles like the proton that's in the nucleus inside inside the atom. But my first discovery or scene in 1932 is about a new particle that they found within those cosmic rays. Well, let's go there now. Where are we going? Okay, so we're going to Pasadena, California, to Caltech, um, and we're on the roof of a the physics building there, um, and it's night time. And all the lights on the campus are off because all of the, basically all of the electricity on the campus has to go to this one experiment. Um, and it's called a, a cloud chamber. And it was a type of particle detector that was invented a few years earlier that allowed people to see with their own eyes or with a camera the tracks of these charged particles, which are invisible to us. We can't tell that they're there, right? But this chamber allowed us to see as they pass through a vapour of alcohol and they could be photographed and then you would see these little wispy cloud trails um, like the sort of contrails of an airplane going through going through the sky. And so this physicist called Carl Anderson had one of these cloud chambers and it was surrounded by this enormous magnet which he'd borrowed from the aeronautics department because he had no money to buy new magnets. It was 1932. 
and this thing <laughs> this thing would would have this very strong magnetic field generated by these big coils. The whole thing weighed about two tons and was the size of a small car. Can you describe it? So Mm. what was it made of? So big copper coils in a sort of cylinder and big iron metal pieces from which the magnetic field was generated from the the electricity running through the copper coils. And the copper coils had to be water-cooled as well. So there's water and electricity absolutely mixed, which you can imagine could, could get quite dangerous. And so this motor generator would run the electricity for this and every now and then a camera would be set off that looked through the end of the cylinder and inside he'd place this glass chamber called the cloud chamber. And so every now and then the camera would go off and there'd be this loud bang as the as the camera and the flash went off to record an image of what was happening at that point in time inside the chamber. And so is the cloud chamber on the roof? Yes, it's placed on the roof, um, outside on the roof of the on the roof of the wow. building. And, uh, I mean, are there any photographs of it? There, is there... I don't I don't have one. I have a photograph of the development of the device itself, which is why I know it's this cylindrical shape and it's about the size of a of a small car. Um, but I, I've never seen a photograph of it actually physically on the roof, but I'm told that's that's where he placed it. And so yeah, there's this piston that makes a loud bang and he has to work all night taking these photographs because otherwise he can't run it because he'll turn the lights off on the rest of the campus. Also, right? the noise would have driven everyone else crazy if he'd done it during the day, presumably. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was it was a loud bang. And so what he's doing there is he's um, basically taking enough photographs that then he has to look through all these photographs and trace out these paths of these particles that are travelling through and see if, from his knowledge of the particles he knows about already, see if there's anything new in there. And so he gathers over, over some period of time, I think it was a a couple of months, about 1,300 photographs. And within those 1,300 photographs, he found 15 in which he saw something really strange. So the reason this chamber is in in a big magnet is because the magnetic field bends the tracks of charged particles. So if a particle is negatively charged, it will bend in one direction. And if it's positively charged, it will bend the other direction. Now, depending on how heavy and how much energy the particle is, the tracks will be either tightly curled or sort of quite sweeping, relatively straight tracks. And what he found in there was in 15 photographs, he found particles that looked like electrons, you know, very well-known particles. He could, you know, in most of his things, he could easily identify what an electron looked like. But they were bending the wrong way, 15 of them. And so that indicated to him... Uh, originally, he called them easily deflectable positives, right? You know, a very scientific, catchy, very catchy. uncatchy name. <laughs> but by the time he'd even written up the paper two, week, two weeks later, he, he became convinced of, of what he was seeing because he'd, he'd done some more experiments and put a piece of lead down the middle of the thing to make sure that um, it wasn't being somehow generated within the chamber and you know, confusing him. So he, yeah, he was a good experimentalist. He, he double-checked everything. And by the time he read up the paper, he was able to announce that what these particles were, were exactly the same as electrons, but with the opposite electric charge, which we would now call positrons. And positrons were the first type of antimatter, which we discovered. (gasps) Okay. And so did he name them positrons? Yes, he did. I mean, that Um, must have been so exciting. And he was very young, wasn't he? He was quite young, yeah. I, I, I think he was um, possibly still in his 20s at that point in time, actually. I'd have to double check. And, and he was later awarded the Nobel Prize for this discovery. And we now know that all fundamental particles appear to have an antimatter equivalent. But the positron was the first one that we found. And, of course, we don't 
have galaxies made of antimatter around us, right? We don't, in our everyday lives, encounter antimatter. And yet, later scientists realised that actually antimatter and matter should exist in equal proportions in the universe. So one of the big mysteries we're still trying to solve is where did all the antimatter go? <laughs> but Carl Anderson, back in 1932, and a few years later he was awarded the Nobel Prize for this discovery, he never lied about it. He was not expecting it. It was not something that he was looking for. He was just like, this was almost by accident, except that obviously he was he had a well-trained mind and he, he you know, did the experiments to try and understand what it was that he was seeing. And it's just an incredible discovery. Amazing. And then was he the one that bought a truck and then yes. drove it up a mountain to try and... And was that to sort of so, so it got more, more adventurous. Yeah. Right, it got more adventurous from there. So four years later, with his own graduate student called Seth Nedermeyer, they got an old flatbed truck again. They still had no money. They put this big old experiment, this two-ton experiment, on the back of a truck and they go hours across the country and up this enormous uh, mountain to a place called Pikes Peak. Um, and they spend six weeks, of the, you know, the truck breaks down as they get up there and they have to get another one and all these things happen to them. It's a bit of a disaster. But they get up there and they spend six weeks with the experiment on, on this mountain taking data and they find another new particle. And this time, instead of being antimatter, it's a particle which is like the electron, but this time it's heavier. And this one we now call the, the muon. And this one, again, it played no role in our everyday matter. And at first they didn't understand why it existed. In fact, one of the leading theorists of the time, Isidore Rabi, his response sort of went down in history because he literally said, well, who ordered that? You know, it was so unexpected. Um, so, yeah, so this, this cloud chamber experiment you know, led to many new discoveries, um, but mostly yeah, the positron and then this other particle, the, the muon, but they even tried putting it up in, um, like, uh, aircraft, in bombers why, and things like Why this. is it so important to be high up? What's the uh, advantage? Of very that? good question. Yes, so the cosmic rays that are coming from outer space, so they, they come into our atmosphere, they interact, and then they um, produce new particles which sort of, I guess, diffuse down is probably a good way to describe okay. it. So there's more of those cosmic ray particles up at altitude than there are by the time you get down to the ground. Right, Okay. Just fascinating. So let's move on to scene two, which is um, much closer to home. It's in Cambridge, isn't it? So tell us what's happening in Cambridge. Yes. So um, in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, which at this point in time is still the world's sort of one of the world's preeminent physics laboratories. It still is today. Um, so it's it's early 1932. And there's two key researchers named uh, Ernest Walton, who was a student from Ireland originally, and John Cockroft, who was from the north of England. And they were working together on this big uh, experiment, which was trying to build a particle accelerator. And now they were in a race with other people around the world who were trying to do it using, as I said before, Tesla coils. Uh, there were some researchers in Germany who were trying to harness lightning um, for the same purpose. Uh, their experiment ended when one of them fell down the ravine that they were using to harness the lightning. Was and he struck by lightning? He was not, but he no. fell down the ravine, and so the experiment came to a swift end, um, which is very sad. <laughs> yeah. but that's something I would have loved to see, actually, that experiment. Um, and, and a few people in the, the US as, as well, and some competing technologies over there. And what they were trying to do was to take protons from inside the atom and put them through a large voltage, and when you put a charged particle through a large voltage, it gains energy, so it goes faster. And so if you can imagine this big 
sort of lecture theatre style room with large arch windows along along the wall and the light streaming in and then this tall metal and glass structure with sort of pipes coming off in different directions and they had you know sort of big old transformers in one corner so sort of ribbed metal devices and so the these protons were supposed to start at the top and then they would come down through a metal pipe uh, within a glass cylindrical enclosure they'd come down through this metal pipe and then there would be a gap in the metal pipe and that's where the particles would experience the voltage in this gap. So as they went across, they would get much faster down the other end and then underneath, at the ground level, there was a wooden box in which um, the researchers would place a, uh, a target of some sort and in this case it was a target of a metal called lithium but they tried all sorts of different things. And then also inside the box, they would have a screen, just like the one that was used originally to discover X-rays, a phosphorescent screen that was designed to light up when it was hit by a charged particle. So they placed that under there. They had a microscope under there as well, so they could look at that in in detail. Um, And then there's cables and wires coming off everywhere and a control desk over the other side of the room. So they've been working on this experiment at this point for about five years. And a couple of years earlier, they tried... Yeah, they'd got it up to speed and they'd tried switching it on and they hadn't seen anything. But the the drive, what they were trying to do was generate protons with enough energy that it could get inside the nucleus of an atom. And their prediction originally was that this would take about 10 million volts. And then they'd realised partway through that with quantum mechanics, with this idea of quantum tunnelling, as we now call it, there's a chance that a lower energy one might just be able to sort of sneak through and into the nucleus just occasionally. Because quantum mechanics lets you do funny things like that. And so they thought, okay, there's a chance that if we build one of a few hundred thousand volts or even maybe a million volts, that that will make something happen just occasionally. And so it's the 14th of April, 1932. And the student, Ernest Walton, who did most of the hands-on work of trying to seal all these glass things together with literally Bank of England sealing wax at first and then later a sort of kind of plasticine that was much easier to work with. He'd sealed everything up, they'd pumped, he'd pumped down the, the vacuum pumps and turned on all the voltages and things were sort of humming, you can imagine it humming in the background, warming the machine up and sort of, okay, I've got the voltage up to a couple of hundred thousand volts. I'm going to pop something in and switch it on and just check. And when you say something... Yep. What what were they putting in? So it would have been a, a metal target of lithium, um, which I presume at that point in time was almost it would have almost looked like a sort of coin, um, right? Just a small piece of metal. Okay. Um, and then near that would have been this this fluorescent screen. And so he he dials the thing in, um, and his other his more senior colleague John Cockroft was off looking after something in a, in another location. So the student is alone, and he sets everything up, and then he, to check what was happening because there was no you know, digital cameras in those days that he could take a feed from to look on a screen, right? So he literally crawls from his control desk across the lab to this little box underneath, this wooden box underneath the machine, which was just big enough. Underneath f- as well. That's already I know, making just, me feel I know, uneasy. I, know, I mean, if it all collapsed, then... When I show my students this, they're like, oh my goodness, <laughs> the radiation. Um, <laughs> it's, it's horrific right now. It's horrific. Now we understand. But he he crawled across and he crawled inside the box because we had no proper particle detectors. So humans were pretty much our particle detectors at that point in time. And he pulls a little curtain um, across next to him. And this box, you know, is no bigger than the size of a large suitcase, really. And he sits in there in the dark and immediately he sees on the screen. He sees flash after flash after flash, all these flashes lighting up the screen. 
And now Ernest Walton hadn't spent all that long training in, in their sort of training laboratory where they, they get trained to identify the different types of particles on these screens. But even he could tell this was special, right? And what he thought it was, and he turned out to be correct, um, was alpha particles, so the nuclei of helium atoms. But of course, there was no helium to start with. So what was happening was the proton was coming down, it was hitting the sample of lithium, that was then undergoing a nuclear reaction and decaying into two alpha particles, two helium nuclei. So what he was observing, they they very quickly realised, was that they, they'd taken the nucleus of an atom for the first time and by bombarding it with protons, they made it split apart into two new nuclei of helium atoms or alpha particles. So Walton realises something's happening here, but he can't, you know, he's like so excited that he can't quite tell. So he calls in his colleague, John Cockroft. Cockroft bundles himself into the box and is like, yeah, this is really important. We better get the director. So they get... But I can't yeah. believe that the, the student went ahead and did, like pressed all the buttons and got in the box without his supervisor so, being so this there. So this is the funny <clears throat> thing. We think about students as being, you know, a- apprentices, but actually in a lot of these experiments... They're doing all the day-to-day work and yeah. they're, they're doing, they do most of it. And actually, historically, a number of students have missed out on Nobel Prizes that they should have had and that were awarded to their supervisors, but they actually did the work. But anyway, that's yeah. a separate separate comment. Yeah. So they get then, so then there's, there's Walton, there's Crocroft, and then they get um, Ernest Rutherford, who is the head of the lab in Cambridge at this time, famous New Zealander, tall, boisterous, very loud man. His students had to build uh, light-up signs above their apparatus to tell him to speak, like, that literally said, talk softly, please, because his voice was so loud it would disrupt some of the electrical apparatus. (laughs) So he's a big character. Anyway, so he originally, earlier in his career, had been the one to actually find alpha particles as a type of radiation, right? So this guy's been looking at flashes on the screen for many years. So he comes in, this tall guy. Can so he, he fit in the box? Yeah, well, they bundle him into the box <laughs> with his knees up around his ears and he's sitting there and he's like, those are alpha particles, all right. You know, I, I should know I was there when they were discovered, you know. And um, and so, and then they get James Chadwick as well, who was another lead researcher in the lab at the time. And they come together and for about about a couple of weeks... Nobody else in the world knew that they'd split the atom because they had to do more experiments to absolutely confirm it and they had to write up a paper for, for the main journal for, for Nature and um, and then they had to absolutely make sure that they weren't fooling themselves before they put the, the result out there. And in my research, I found there was one other person who knew, which was, um, I think her name I think her name is Fanny. She was the girlfriend of Ernest Walton who was in Ireland and he'd written to her... And so these four men in the lab and Ernest Walton's girlfriend in Ireland were the only people for about a week there that knew the atom had been split. Amazing. Yeah. Imagine the feeling of excitement. And I mean, yeah, I can't imagine it. It was, yeah. I, it's actually, even to me nowadays, because we, we so rarely get an yeah. event where something happens so quickly because, of course, we're looking for things now that are so rare that it would take a lot longer than that to realise what was happening. Yeah, and you wouldn't maybe have that kind of boom moment exactly. of discovery. Exactly. Eureka. It, yeah. It, yeah, kind of the eureka moment, yeah. exactly. And so a few a few weeks later, on Thursday, 28th of April, they all go down to London to the Royal Society, the sort of preeminent society in, in science, and they're announcing originally a discovery by James Chadwick, one of the colleagues. That's why they called the meeting. They were announcing that he, after many years of quiet research in the background, had discovered the, the neutron, the neutral particle within the nucleus. 
And so everyone thought that was amazing. You know, Rutherford announced this. It was wonderful. Everyone had read the papers by that time. And then he stays at the podium. And then he says, I've got another announcement to make. And he makes John Cockcroft and Ernest Walton stand up. You know, these two young men in the audience. And announces that for the first time, they have managed to split split the nucleus of the atom. And, of course, the audience who weren't expecting that one, just burst into applause. And it's just this, I I just can't imagine, it's just such an incredible thing to announce at one meeting that within one lab, they've made both of these discoveries in the same year. And of course, you know, for better or worse, the world would never be the same again. No, well, exactly. And so the news must have gone around the world very quickly. And I wanted to just, uh, before we move on to... Um, your final scene. I just wanted to ask you about the collaborative nature of science and and sort of communication between scientists. You said there was a race. Yes. So is that very much a competitive kind of, um, what's the relationship like? Are they helping each other or is it very much like we're just going to beat you and it's sort of a competition? So, yes, scientific competition is an interesting one. It's usually quite, there's a collaborative nature always to that competition because at the end of the day, you're both trying to sort of find out the same thing about nature. And there, there was a lab in the US as well um, run by Ernest Lawrence, um, and he built a different type of particle accelerator that just about could have beaten Cockcroft and Walton to, to the discovery, but, but didn't. He, but he didn't. missed out. Yeah. <laughs> At that point in time, most of the communications would happen by letter, which would take quite a while. Yeah. Sometimes, obviously, when it was big news, it would be in, in, the, in the press and through scientific journals and then through scientific meetings. But, you know, they might... And they, they did travel for meetings uh, back in those days. So they Some had of the conferences. Big conferences. They were... Um, there was a lot fewer people at them in those days than, than now. And they, a lot of the, the main ones that we know were sort of invitation-only conferences. Mm. And so you might, you might only have 30 or 40 of the leading people attend the conferences. But, yeah, they, they would then share all their results because a, a lot of it that collaboration versus competition is being able to sort of see someone's results and go I am not sure you've interpreted that correctly I don't think you've you know they love to tell each other that they've we got do it wrong. we do love to tell each other that we're wrong I think all academics do I think in every subject definitely in history we do need to learn how to do it more kindly but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes it's how research and science especially yeah, is course. a self-correcting process yeah. is that if someone has an extraordinary result, uh, they better have some extraordinary evidence to back it up or I'm going to sort of sit there and go, okay, and how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, but it's very important, isn't it, to test it and you know, peer review and all that exactly. whole process. Exactly, and it, and it was absolutely happening back then. Now, of course, you know, Rutherford having the ego that he has definitely wanted the yeah. discovery in his own laboratory so the he credit. would have been quite pleased and they had journalists on their doorstep and had to the, the two researchers especially Walton and Cockcroft and Walton they weren't used to this at all Rutherford was but he, they weren't used to being in the media at all so they had to very quickly adapt have to all these training. journalists <laughs> hello it's Peter here nothing quite brings the past to life like travelling to sea where a momentous event took place, where an art movement sprang to life, where a battle raged, or where the first notes of a symphony sounded. If you're culturally curious and looking for a holiday with a difference, then take a look at Ace Cultural Tours, who've sponsored this episode of Travels Through Time. They've been taking tour groups globetrotting for over 60 years and their tours cover a range of interests and destinations with plenty on offer in the UK as well as further afield. All ACE tour groups are hosted 
by subject experts who are often able to provide exclusive access visits to private art collections, houses and gardens. Whether you want to feel the wind in your hair on the Roman frontier at Hadrian's Wall, follow in the footsteps of Picasso and Matisse around the Côte d'Azur, or contemplate hundreds of years of worship at Japan's oldest surviving temple, Ace Ashore, to have something for you. Find out more via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their friendly team on 01223 841055. Let's move on to your third scene now, which is um, we're going to Austria, I think. Yes. Is that right? And um, this is a very interesting counterpoint to what we've just been talking about in, in terms of who gets the credit mm. um, and, and also the sort of invitation only aspect of science. So, can you? Um, Tell us, who, who are we going to observe and what are they doing? Right, so we're observing two female physicists, actually. Marietta Blau, um, who uh, was working in Vienna in the Radium Institute, unpaid. Uh, also joining her in around 1932 was her uh, more junior uh, assistant, more junior staff member, Hersa Wembacher, who um, was also a female physicist. And the Radium Institute in Vienna... Uh, it's quite a special place, actually, because at one point in time, when almost no women worked in physics, there was sort of 30-40% women working in that institute, and it was run by a, a man called Stephen Mayer at that point in time. And um, as I understand it, he was very much a supporter of female scientists. Now, you'll note that I said she was working unpaid, though, so not that yeah. much of a supporter. Mm. Um, so Marietta Blau had had a really interesting journey in sort of into physics. She became a physicist, but she'd gone off to work in industry for a little bit and then sort of come back into her research. And she was working in the field of radiation studies, but she'd had some background experience in industry working with photographic film. And what she realised, along with some other people, was that you could use, instead of a, a chamber that you have to photograph, you know, as it changes in time, she realised you could use a type of thick photographic film and leave it somewhere and expose it to these cosmic rays up on a mountain, something like that, and then simply later go and expose the film and you'd have all these different particle tracks. And it was quite an incredible technique and she collaborated with industry, with Ilford and Kodak and companies like that, to get them to thicken the films and she was experimenting with them and improving the technique, trying to understand how to count literally the grains in the in this photographic emulsion um, and, and how these particles would affect that. And starting in 1932, she and uh, Hertha Wembacher started taking these emulsions up to a, uh, a sort of research station at the top of a mountain near Innsbruck, and it's called the, the Hafeleka Station. Um, I think I've pronounced that correctly. <laughs> and so, and it was at 7,500 feet high and they would take these photographic plates and they would you know, get up there and leave them up there for months at a time collect them up again take so them back down outside like on the side of the mountain can you it's unclear to me whether they were they were protected from the weather or not i presume okay. they needed some form of weather protection yeah because most of the cosmic rays would would go through a sort of thin cover over okay. over these okay. um it, some of the cosmic rays will even go through um a, a building um, so they, they could have even placed them inside a building. But I presume they were exposed somewhat to the elements. Yeah, I was unable to find a photograph of their, their exact one at that point in time. But I, n I now 
know that people who, and they still sometimes are used today, they sort of have them on a metal frame outside and, and leave them outside. So the, the film itself is covered up so that the water doesn't get to it and so forth. Yeah. But, but the particles will go straight through a thin layer and then through the emulsion and leave sufficient energy that it will be like as if light has exposed um, that small section and leave a, a sort of dark track that you can follow up on later and, and, and look at once you've exposed the plate. So she did basically all of the pioneering work behind this technique of photographic emulsion plates and it took about five years of research with, with um, Hertha Wembacher but they actually found and it, it really uh, astonished the scientific community that they found instances on the photographic plates where instead of a trail of a particle passing by, which is what people had been observing in, in other detectors and what they'd observed previously, in some of the plates they found what looked almost like a tiny firework. Um, so instead of a track travelling across the plate, they found from one point on the plate a whole lot of tracks travelling out from a central point. And they gave them this lovely name. They called them Stars of Disintegration. <laughs> well, I love it. Sounds like an, uh, an album. Exactly. An album. Stars of Disintegration would be a great Cure, bad name. Definitely. <laughs> would have made an album like that. And what was actually happening and what they observed for the first time was a high-energy cosmic ray coming in, hitting a nucleus of an atom within the photographic plate and disintegrating it. So, again, it was sort of breaking apart the nuclei of atoms, but this time that it was happening from... A natural source of, of cosmic rays um, and that uh, in many ways m- many people say that this launched this ability and this technique launched the field of particle physics or, or the, the, this idea that we could look for all of these new particles from you know with high energy beams of other particles coming in and then interacting and then creating new particles that weren't there before. Because presumably that was much cheaper safer more practical so much more robust right massive car sized exactly exactly and actually in in many ways it it democratized who Mm. could do these discoveries because it was relatively cheap to get hold of this technology that she invented and so rather than you know one person with a big cloud chamber experiment who sort of could then monopolize the field Basically, you know, if you could get your hands on this equipment, you could go out and potentially discover something new. And so there was, a a few years later, a woman um, in India. I I love her story as well, and I found her while I was reading about Marietta Blau, and her name is Biba Chowdhury. She was, I think, the first PhD female physicist in India. I think that's true. But she was taking these similar photographic plates up mountains in in India to places like Darjeeling, Mm -hmm. places like that. Again, very high altitude. These women were very adventurous, right? And Biba Chowdhury actually discovered, I mentioned before, uh, the the muon. And she discovered the muon and something like it, but a little bit heavier again. And we now call that other particle a pion. And eventually we understood what all these particles consisted of, right? But at that time they didn't understand. It was just, okay, there's all these new particles. Unfortunately for Biba Chowdhury, though, even though she published her result in Nature, there was two two reasons why people have probably never heard of her, two cited reasons, one of which is that her emulsion plates were not the highest quality because it, when she was doing her work was a few years later and World War II had gotten in the way of the supply chain, basically, and so she couldn't get quite as good of photographic plates as, as she needed, so her results were pretty clear but maybe not completely unambiguous. Um, and so a few years later, a researcher called Cecil Powell in Bristol used this technique, used Marietta Blau's 
photographic emulsion technique. He knew about Bieber Chowdhury's work and he followed up on it and he made the definitive discovery of the pion for which he was later awarded the Nobel Prize. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question. Yes. Because I know that with Marietta Blau and... Hertha Wombecker. yeah. That, that's quite a complicated story because um, Marietta was Jewish. Yes. And Hertha was a Nazi. A Nazi. So tell that story because that, that's also... Yeah, so so Marietta Blau was already, I guess, discriminated against a little bit. You know, she wasn't... Well, not, not just a little bit, but as a woman she was discriminated against. But then the fact that she was Jewish also... Um, caused her real problems. In fact, at one point she tried to apply for promotion. This is pre-war. And the panel, their response was literally like, a Jew and a woman, that's too much. Like, you know, it's just like outright discrimination. So even after some of the discoveries they made, a year after her discovery, she it was 1938 and she had to flee, basically. And so then Hertha Wembacher, who who was a member of the Nazi party, sort of took over the research, kept all the notebooks, all those things. And um, Marietta Blau fled to Oslo, aided by another female researcher who was a chemist, Ellen Gladish was her name, uh, and then eventually ended up actually with a position in Mexico, aided by Albert Einstein, who was trying to help people find positions when they had to flee and sort of faded into relative obscurity in Mexico and only much, much later in her career did she come back to Austria and even then she wasn't very, very welcomed. She was given a few sort of prizes, but the the Nobel Prize in particular, some of the key papers would have probably not included her name uh, afterwards because she was a Jew, the ones coming out of out of Austria. So do you think that Herta kind of wrote her out of the process because she was Jewish and or do you think that was a sort of Certainly, if you personal. were a member of the Nazi party at that point in time, to talk about, even in a positive way, the achievements of a Jewish researcher who had fled would probably have got you into trouble, right? So yeah. I assume that the politics of it at the time was, even if Herta had wanted to, you know, attribute discovery or invention to Blau, that she would have found it difficult to. And has Blau ever been formally recognised? So there's been a few, yeah, she was given a few awards. Um, Her contributions were not well recognised, certainly within her lifetime. She was relatively obscure. Later on, of course, a lot of researchers have found these stories of these sort of under-recognised women and sort of written them back in. But what was interesting to me was that when the Nobel Prize was awarded to Cecil Powell, and this is then sort of post-war in around 1950, I think, was his Nobel Prize, even though he knew of the work of both Marietta Blau and Bieber Chowdhury. He'd cited it in other sources. It doesn't take long to go through his work and his textbooks and his writing and find the attribution of, of, you know, the fact that these women had done things first. But there was a very biased report written when it came to the awarding of the Nobel Prize for that, which really played down Marietta Blau's contribution to it. Um, Because someone somewhere obviously sort of said, what about her? And so some report was written that was really quite biased, as I understand. A couple of science historians have have sort of written about this in detail. And so Powell was awarded the Nobel Prize um, just, just to him. And this is the thing about the women and their contributions to physics. I think one of the things that I enjoyed the most in researching this book was realizing that they were always there all along and doing fabulous work and that you know despite all the barriers up against them the problem is with the way that I mean of course this is a particular political situation with 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 Nazism in World War Two, but even taking that out of the picture they would have gone under under recognized and their contributions wouldn't have been say awarded Nobel Prizes which happened to a number a number of other women as well and it's isn't it called the Matilda effect 
Yes. So now it sort of has a name, this thing of taking the contributions of women and either attributing them to the men that they were working with or just generally playing down how important it was. And it was named the Matilda Effect by Margaret Rossiter, a science historian in 1993, named after Matilda Gage, who was a suffragette who first recognised that this was happening, not in an individual way, but in a systematic way to women. And so it's taken a a long time for sort of science historians to then go in and find even the biographical details of these women because, you know, their letters weren't necessarily kept, their contributions weren't necessarily written down, there weren't the big news articles, there wasn't the interview for the Nobel Prize. So we literally have less historical source material to go from from these women, even if you can find them in the first place. And as you say, they were practising science having probably had to really struggle to even get an education and right. certainly to go to... I mean, I think the Nobel Prize organisation should invent a posthumous prize and award it to a woman for every year of the last 100 years. That, I mean, w- that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? To, to go through the history of the, the Physics Nobel Prize and for every one that was awarded to a man, yeah. to sort of go, right, who were the women well, who contributed to this? Not yeah. just physics, chemistry, you know, yeah. all, 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 all the, the... Yeah, all, all different fields. It's... it's Yeah, and I found it really important in writing my book as well because I do highlight uh, at least five or six different women whose contributions were overlooked and I wrote them back into the story because to me it was so obvious how how much they'd contributed. And I only found them after choosing the experiments that I highlighted and after finding the stories of the men who'd done the work. But as a female physicist, to me, they just jumped out of the page and I was like, what, what, why have I never heard of this woman before? So it it was very much not me going in and finding stories of women and then choosing experiments based around what they'd done. It was quite the opposite, that I found the stories of these women um, within somewhere in a footnote, in an acknowledgement, in a, you know, thanks for the data collection, miss, what whatchamacallit. And and then I just couldn't help it. I just got curious and dubbed in. But that's so important in. that someone is telling their stories. and Yeah. You know. And I also found it important to name the effect, to give it this name, the Matilda effect. And Margaret Rossiter gave it that name with the hope that people would recognise it as a systematic thing that was happening and then do the work to find the stories that had otherwise been overlooked, which are going to be harder to find than the stories of the men, and to write them back in and to name them and to give them their rightful place in history. And when I found that that was her intention with naming it, I was like, not only am I going to name it, but I'm going to make sure I put these stories back in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Such a, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to explain how that makes you feel as a woman. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, angry and sad as these things always mm. do. But the actually the sentiment that I was left with was I was really buoyed with hope because you know, growing up as a woman now in physics and still, you know, there's a lot of effort to try and encourage women still in physics. And you do have these moments of doubt of going, well, you know, and, and one of the reasons I learned a lot about like you know, the neuroscience, the biology, the, all of the gender differences, all of these things, I, I actually earlier in my career really deep dived into it because I was like, why are there few fewer people like me in my field? Like literally, why is this? And Lazy people like to go, oh, it's just like that. Women just aren't interested or women just, you know, like something different with their brains, you know, some lazy thing, which is completely wrong, by yeah. the way, when you look at the science. And it it really does just turn out to be societal bias. And so I was left buoyed with hope after finding all these stories of women who obviously had to fight not just, you know, implicit sexism, but like outright discriminatory sexism and still were there 
doing this incredible work and I I just went we've been doing we've been doing this all along like there's no there's absolutely no reason why we should not you know in fact society has missed out on so many incredible contributions because of these biases well absolutely and you know I write about the history of science in much earlier periods when they're genuinely you know weren't any women doing it because they just didn't they weren't educated and and perhaps there were but obviously there's there's just no evidence left of them yeah so it is a hopeful story if in so far as you look back and there are gradually and gradually very very incrementally there are more and more women who are engaged in scientific practice and are making discoveries and let's just hope that it continues in that direction but what one of the biggest sort of thoughts which I have when I'm doing research is imagine I mean and not just the women but also you know for many 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 um, centuries only the top sort of two or one percent of society even got taught to read and write so imagine how many brilliant scientists brilliant geniuses spent their whole you know lives and and imagine how many of them yeah exactly that we're missing out on now because of the wealth inequality both within individual countries but of course globally as well and you know the incredible discoveries inventions and minds that society needs at this point in time right yeah that we are potentially missing out on and so that's one of the reasons why for me in my work that diversity is absolutely key to what I do yes absolutely um, well, on that note, I think um, I'm going to ask you the last final question, um, which is if you could have picked up a memento, and I don't know if you're going to choose that enormous cloud chamber, if you could have picked something up from one of the three places we visited today and brought it back with you to the present and kept it, what would it be? I think it would be Marietta Blau's diary so that I could know her better as a as a person. Great choice. And then you could write a much more a better, bigger book about her. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. A great choice. Thank you so much. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was me, Violet Moller, speaking to Susie Sheehy last week. Her fascinating book, The Matter of Everything, 12 Experiments That Changed Our World, is just out with Bloomsbury. Please visit our website to find links to Susie's talks and some excellent photos of the Large Hadron Collider. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.